0: If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7? 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to read the first 17 verses together. As you're turning there, I want you to realize the gravity of the words that we're reading. This story is not as famous as David and Goliath. And this story is not as as famous as David and Bathsheba. But most people believe this is the most theologically loaded, theologically significant passage in at least 1st and 2nd Samuel, perhaps the entirety of the Old Testament, because this passage builds a bridge for us to the New Testament, to the Gospels. We're going to look at that this morning. 2nd Samuel, chapter 7, we'll read the first 17 verses together. It says, Now when the king lived in his house, that's David, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, "'Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you.' But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, "'Go and tell my servant David, "'Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling.' When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Heavenly Father, this morning, what we want is to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus because it's in Christ alone that we have hope. It's in Christ alone that all of our guilt and all of our shame and all of our fear is eradicated from our lives. It's in Christ alone that we have the security of today and the hope for tomorrow. It's in Christ alone that my penalty has been paved, that the power of sin has been overcome in my life. It's in Christ alone that though one day I will go from dust to dust, that I will be raised from the earth as Christ was raised from the earth. And so it's Christ alone. Who gives us a sermon to preach back to our fear. It's Christ alone who gives us words that we can say to our racing hearts. It's Christ alone that allows our trembling hands to steady. And our nodding stomachs to be eased. And I pray this morning that we would see Jesus in such a way. That this would be our real life experience this morning. Father, we offer our time to you, and we want you to say to us through your word what you said in those days through Nathan, thus says the Lord. We ask these things now in Christ alone. Amen. You may be seated. So one of the things that my girls and I, like our, one of our very favorite things to do is we're big on water slides. Like, any, any, any more water park folks in the house today? Like, I, I'm a big, y'all know what I'm talking about. I'm a big water park guy. You know, like, roller coasters are okay. I can kind of take them or leave them. But, like, you give me a day at Blizzard Beach, I'm all about it. You know what I'm saying? And so every year, we typically go down to Gulf Shores. You know, they have the Waterville Park down there. And the first thing that my girls and I are going to do is we're going to make a beeline for the biggest, baddest slide that they've got. You know, because in my mind I'm thinking I want to ride this thing as many times as I have, and as people come in over the course of the day, it's the line's going to get longer and longer and longer. So I, I want to get a jump on it. You know what I'm saying? But every year we kind of have to go through the same routine. It's kind of developed into a little bit of a tradition because every year my girls start off with cold feet. It's like they forget how awesome the water. The water slide was the year before, and we, every, inevitably, we'll start climbing the platform, climbing the, the steps to go up toward the slide, and, and the ground gets further and further and further away, and we get higher and higher, and my little Sarah, she has the same, say, she says, Dad, you know, I'm only five, I still am a little afraid of heights. I'm only five. I'm still a little afraid of heights. And then I, and I can see Gracie kind of turn it inward and kind of getting a little bit nervous and a little bit angry. And so every year I have the same speech that I give to them, all right? And I, I've, already, I've already prepared my heart for it on our way to the water park because I know it's coming, all right? And the speech consists of two parts. Part A, all right? Listen, over the course of your life, this, this gets very philosophical. Over the course of your life, every great moment you have, every great experience, every great adventure that you go on, every big moment that you experience is going to start with a heart that beats a little faster than normal. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. That nerves often mean that something awesome is about to happen. Nerves often means that something exciting is about to take place. So don't allow yourself to stop because of nerves. And then part B... Dad will never lead you into danger. Dad will never lead you toward harm. That if I tell you it's safe, if I tell you it's okay, it's safe. It's okay. Because I want what's best for you. So every year we go through this same speech. But you know, it's really a picture of our lives, isn't it? We have to have something to say to our anxiety. We have to have something to say to our fears. We have to have something to say to our nerves because we as human beings are timid little creatures. Every year we go through some of the same experiences that we went through the year before and we know how God has delivered us and we know how God has provided for us and we know how God has protected us. But every year we come up to the edge of the Red Sea one more time and the nerves take over and the heart beats fast and the hands tremble and the stomach's not and we're overwhelmed. He said, you know what we need? We need a sermon to preach to our nerves. We need a, a sermon to preach to our unbelief. We need a sermon to preach to those trembling hands of ours that they might be steadied one more time by a faithful and good and gracious Father who will never lead us toward what will bring ultimate and final harm to us. Throughout the history of God's people, dating back millennia, 2 Samuel chapter 7 has been one of the primary things that they have spoken to their fears. It's been one of the primary messages that have been used over the course in history of God's people to bring comfort to them, to bring ease to their, to their anxiety, to bring, to bring rest to their racing minds, that they would come to this passage and they would remember this promise. And coming to this passage and remembering this promise. They would remember that their God is for them and their God is with them and their God is to them so that he might supply one more time. And I believe that there's fresh hope here for us. I believe there is a message that is here for us that, can use, that we can use to preach to our unbelief and that we can use to preach to our suffering and that we can use to preach to our racing hearts and our own trembling hands. What we're going to see is David is going to want to do something big for God. And wanting to do something big for God, God comes with an unexpected answer. Uh, no. No. That's not how this is going to go. But what we see is at least three different reasons that God rejects David's request to do something big and great for him. And in each one of those requests, what we see is the message that Israel has preached to itself over the years and that we, the church, the new Israel today are able to preach to ourselves so that we might sustain. The first thing that I want you to see this morning is that God is always with us. God is always with us. So, So the deal is David is in the exact opposite position he was a couple of weeks ago when we looked at Psalm 56. At Psalm 56, we said that David was fighting this multi-front war. He was fighting with Gath, and he was fighting with Saul, and it seemed like all of his enemies were closing in on him all the time, and that no matter which way he looked or where he was going, there was a problem there, and there was an enemy there. When we come to 2 Samuel chapter 7, the exact opposite is, is true. Verse 1 actually says that David has rest on every side. That all of his enemies have been overcome. All of his opposers have been defeated. That David is able now at this point in his life, uh, kind of as an established king, to look back over his kingdom and to enjoy the goodness of God. To enjoy what God has accomplished. To enjoy what God has given. But there's something that doesn't sit quite right with David. David is here and he's in his palace. He's in a palace. It's described as a palace of cedar. And that was, that was really just an idiom to say that it is a palace built out of all of the finest materials. Everything that was great, that money could buy, resources that were, were special and precious in those days were used to build this immaculate palace so that David could sit here with peace on every side and, and enjoy what God has given it and enjoy what God has done. But David looks out his palace window And down below would have been a sea of tents that made up all of Israel. And in the center of that sea of tents was one tent in particular that stood out above all the other tents. The tabernacle. And there it was. By this point, hundreds of years have passed since the tabernacle was first established. And there is God's house in the middle of all these people. And it's just a tent, a hundreds-year-old ancient rotting, threadbare, worn-out tent. And David has what I think is an honorable reaction. Who am I to be in a house of cedar when the Lord of lords and the King of kings, the God of gods is there in a threadbare tent? And so he says, I want to build him a house. I want to build the Lord a house of cedar. I want to build the Lord a temple that is made out of all of the finest materials, the, the best of the best, the greatest of the greatest, because that's what the Lord is entitled to. That's what he's worthy of. And the prophet Nathan says, this is honorable, this is good. Go and do all that is in your heart except that night, the Lord comes to the prophet Nathan. By the way, this is the first time we meet Nathan in the scripture. It certainly will not be the last. There's a pretty big confrontation with Nathan to come. But, but he, the Lord comes and he says, no, he will not build me a house. He will not build me a temple. And he gives all these different reasons. Well, the first thing that I want you to see is that he says, you're not going to build me a, ta- a temple because I'm with my people. Look at what he says there in verse 6. He gives three different explanations that are all centered on this one reality of God being with his people. He says, I have not lived in a house since the day they have brought me out of Egypt, or I, that I brought my people up out of Israel from Egypt. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In other words, I've always been in a tent. Who do you get off telling me what I need to live in? I've always been in a tent. I told them to build me a tent, they built me a tent, I'm in a tent. Okay? Verse 7 kind of tells why. In all places I have moved with all the people of Israel. Emphasis on this word with. I've went wherever my people go, that's where I go. Whatever my people have done, that's what I've done. Wherever my people have lived, that's where I've lived. That's where my presence has been. My presence has resided with my people. And then he finally says, did I speak a word with any of the judges whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel? Saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? And then this is the last reason he gives. He says, did I tell y'all to build me a house? Did I tell you to build me a temple? I think what I told you, David, what I told the judges, what I have told all the elders of Israel, what I have told the rulers of Israel is to shepherd my people. Because why? That's how the Lord leads his people. Now how does a shepherd lead the flock? The shepherd doesn't lead the flock flock from the warmth and comfort of his home. The shepherd doesn't lead the flock from some ivory tower. The shepherd leads the flock by living with the flock, by living among the flock. If you hang out with a shepherd, they don't smell real nice. They don't smell real nice. You know what they smell like? Sheep. Sheep. Because they live there on the ground, in the dirt, in all of the stuff with the sheep, with the flock. And he's saying, this is who I am, David. I am a God who is with my people. Was I not the the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud that led you across the wilderness? Was I not the, the cloud of glory that met with you and Moses on top of Sinai? Was I not the ark of the covenant that went with you into battle and marched with you around the walls of Jericho? See, this is a contradiction to all the other gods of the day. I want you to think about the point of reference that he makes here with Egypt. What is the one thing that all of us know about Egypt? If we don't know anything else about Egypt, what we know about are the pyramids, right? The pyramids. They're still considered to this day to be one of the the, uh, seven wonders of the ancient world. And do you know what the pyramids are? They are temples or tombs of those whom the Egyptians believed to be gods. That even today, you can go into Egypt and the the statues that they erected and the monuments that they erected to, to set apart their gods from all the other gods are still standing thousands of years later. But dead gods in fancy houses don't bring much hope to their people. Let me say that one more time. Dead gods living in fancy houses don't bring hope to their people. Do you know what brings hope? to your people when the wolves begin to come in and there in the middle of the flock is the shepherd the one against no, no uh, enemy can prevail the one against whom no, no power can overcome the shepherd of shepherds the king of kings the leader of leaders the God of God the Lord of lords there right in the middle where you can see him see God's presence with his people was intended to comfort his people It was intended to strengthen his people. It was intended for them to have something that they could say back to all of the fears and all of the threats that were always pressing in on them on every side. And now, even though they're in peacetime, there is no change in the character of God. Where God wants to be is God wants to be with his people so that they can reach out and know that he is within arm's length. See, we do not serve an ivory tower, God, brothers and sisters. We do not serve a God who is content to, to build this clock, wind it up, and let it tick. We serve a God who lives with his people, among his people, in the midst of his people. And that is intended to bring comfort to us as weak sinners. It reminds me, so right now, my wife, who is normally right here, is not here. And the reason that she is not here is because all three kids that we have are, have a stomach virus right now. So it, is, it was a long night at the Hill House. Now, I, it wasn't a very long night for me, but it was a very long night for her, okay? God bless that woman. But, but I've noticed a phenomenon in our house that if Joseph, not Joseph, Josiah, my son, you think I would know his name, if Josiah falls and crashes, or if jo, Josiah, and he crashes a lot, he is honestly my boy. You know what I'm talking about? If he's sick, or if he falls and he's crying, his ability to recover happens just as quickly as his mom can pick him up. That there's some healing power that parents have in the lives of their children when their children are crying and screaming, and, and, and you would think that they have a severed limb or something. They come and you pick them up, and you pull them right here. And within a matter of seconds, they're calm, and they're quiet. And they're comforted. Now, if mom or dad is not there, as long as mom and dad are not there, the agony carries forward. You know what I'm saying? You've seen this production before at your house, I'm sure. They scream and scream and scream and scream. But then you pick them up and you pull them close and they calm and they settle. They've been healed miraculously, right? This is how God relates to his people. This is how God relates to his children. This is why he is not an ivory tower God, but he is a God that dwells in a tent with his people in the dirt as a shepherd. That He can take and pick us up and pull us close that we will know, that we will know, that we are not alone. Now I want you to think about the word tent for a second. I want us to to think about the idea of a tent in a New Testament way. How does the New Testament describe a tent? Because I think it takes this idea of God being with us and it carries it forward infinitely so. Now, look at 2 Corinthians. I have 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 2-4 through 4 on there. It gives us some idea of how the New Testament understands a tent. It says, For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now what is he talking about there? Anybody remember what he talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 4? He's talking about these bodies of ours that are jars of clay that contain the glory of God. They're jars of clay, but they're always chipping and always falling apart. They become worn out and threadbare, don't they? That we're born and we're born and we're, we're growing in strength and wisdom and we're, we're getting stronger and stronger and stronger until we're getting weaker and weaker and weaker, right? The process of life under the curse of sin over this earth. These bodies that we have are easily injured. They're fragile. They, they decay and diminish with age. Our, our minds are not what they once were. Our health is not what it once was. Our mood is not what it once was. Our, our strength is not what it once was. Our athleticism is not what it once was. No, these are tents. They are temporary dwellings that, that live here for a little while but diminish with age. I want you to think about this God who is determined to live in a tent. What did Jesus do, brothers and sisters? You know what Jesus did? Jesus came and showed us and demonstrated firsthand the determination of our God to live in our tent. He came and he put on the tent himself. He put on our bodies. He put on human nature. He lowered his own dignity that he might know my suffering and your suffering, that he might know what it's like to be hungry and tired and sad and upset and betrayed and ultimately to be crucified. That is, Christ showed us the determination of God to live with us to live with us so what is it that you can say to your anxiety what is it that you can say to your unbelief what is it that you can say to all of the of the trembling hands and the nerves and and all of the the insecurities that you have about today and about tomorrow god is with me god is determined to be with me In fact, God has sent, Jesus said, I am leaving that I might send to you a helper, that I might send to you a Holy Spirit. That is, that the Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, might come to dwell where? In our tent, in this temple that is made for him. Because we are in Christ. That is, we already have a permanent dwelling in Christ. We live in the house that Christ has built, the tent that he has. This is just for a little while, but until we get there, until it's fully realized, here is the presence of Christ in me. Oh, brothers and sisters, you have something to tell. You have something to say back to all your worries, all of your fear, all of your shame. He is with me. He is with me. Not only that, but we see that he is, that God is always to us. God is always to us. So what we begin to understand is that that David kind of has this all wrong. That that, that David thinks in his mind that what he's going to be able to do is he's going to be able to give something to God. That that he's going to be able to do an act of kindness to God. But but what God begins to frame up for David is that, David, you have our relationship all wrong. Let me define the terms of the relationship here, David. David, you have nothing to offer to me. You have nothing to give to me. David, you are the receiver. I am the giver. You are the receiver. I am the giver. You see, grace, by definition, is a one-way street. Grace is never a, a dual, I give you, you give me. But this is how all of the other gods operated. You see, in the, in the context, what you have to understand is that what, what uh, God is working very hard through his prophet Nathan to say to David is that you fundamentally misunderstand what I'm doing because you are relating to me the way all of the other kings relate to their God. But our relationship is not like that. See, all the other kings, what they would do is they would first go and they would build a fancy temple for their God. And they would build this temple out of elaborate metals and elaborate stones and elaborate woods. And, and you would come and at the center of their town would be this temple. And you would have to stop and say, wow, what a great God must live in a temple like that. So the king would build this temple and the temple would make the, the God famous. And then when the God was made famous, he would be happy with the king. And he would then bless the king and prosper the king and, and keep all of the, the people safe. That is... All the other gods operated on a system that said, you work hard for me, and then I'll work hard for you. You work hard for me, and then i work hard for you. And here is God coming to David and saying, David, our relationship's not like that. This is not a situation where I want, first of all, you to go and prove how great you are. This is not a situation in which I want you to show me how strong you are. This is not a situation where I want you to go and work really hard for me. And if you work really hard for me, I'm going to repay you with my grace. No, 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 no. That's not what grace is at all. This is a relationship that is all founded by grace, founded by generosity, founded by me prospering you, not because you're awesome, but just because. Because I'm great. Look at what he says there. Verse 8, he says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. A prince. Now, isn't that interesting? Because we don't remember David as being the prince of Israel. We remember David as being the king of Israel, right? The people of Israel, they didn't want a prince. They weren't clamoring for a prince and calling for a prince. They wanted a king. Give us a king like all of the other nations. But God is coming to him and he's saying, you are the prince. They asked for a king. I gave them a prince. Now, what's the difference in a prince and a king? A king has wealth. A king has a house. A king has a palace. A king has authority. A king makes decrees. A a king's word rules everything that takes place within the kingdom. What does a prince do? A prince lives in his daddy's house. A prince lives by his daddy's budget. A prince goes delegated with his daddy's authority. Does that not sound more like David than a king? And this is what God is defining and clarifying for David. David, you are a you are my prince. You live by what I give you. You have a palace because I have given it to you. You have a kingdom because I have given, given it to you. Do you not remember that your dad didn't even think that you were a, a son worthy enough to bring to the dinner? Do you not remember that I found you in the middle of the sheep? Do you not remember that I found you where nobody else even knew you were? Do you not remember I went to the pasture and I got you and you were in the palace from the pasture because I have made it so because I am great because I am generous because I am gracious so what does God do to David he flips the script He flips the script. He flips the script so that he might train David and teach David the nature of their relationship with one another. He flips the script so that David will know always who is the giver and who is the receiver. The source of grace and the one-way street nature of this grace. That it is always going to be from God to David. You'll notice that there's a formula and it comes up over and over. I just have verses 9 through 11 because it allows you to see it the clearest, I think. But you'll see, he says, and I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. So, so, so he's, he's going back and he's saying, look, I've been good to you. You know I've been good to you. Look and see, I have brought you out of the pasture. I have given you this palace of cedar. I have given you peace on every side. I have. I have been good to you, David. And you know better than anyone how I have been good to you. This is where it gets sweet to me. Look at what he says next. And I will. I will make for you a great name like the name great names of the earth and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies moreover the Lord declares you that the Lord you see the change in name I'm going to come back to that in a second the Lord will make you house i have and i will You see, brothers and sisters, we have in our minds because of our flawed theology that somehow grace is a one-time experience that we have at the moment of salvation when all of our sins are taken from us. But grace is not a one-time experience. Grace is a lifetime of enjoyment of the goodness and the kindness and the generosity of God. That we are saved by grace. We are delivered by grace. We are found in the muck of the pasture where everyone else has forgotten us. We are absolutely outcasts from our own families and there grace finds us it has found us it did find us oh but brothers and sisters today in the new life that i live in christ i live by the gasoline of grace grace carries me forward grace is my experience today today i felt his mercies new again this morning didn't you Tomorrow when I wake up, his mercies will be new yet again. It will be grace that will allow his strength to be made perfect in my weakness. It is grace that will allow me to live without guilt and shame so that I can say there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It is grace that will allow me to lay down my head at night and know that even if I didn't get my checklist done, even if my ambitions have been dashed and my dreams have been crushed, I can lay my head down and know... I am not alone because there is grace to me. Grace to me. He has. Oh, but brothers and sisters, the good news is he's not finished yet. And this is what he's telling David. He has and he will. Oh, David, you think it was good when I took you out of the pasture. Oh, David, you think it was good when you struck down the giant. Oh, David, you ain't seen nothing yet. And brothers and sisters, it's the same in my life and yours. It's the same in my life and yours. Every day is a fresh discovery and an opportunity to enjoy the grace and mercy and power of Almighty God, of God Himself. And so he flips the script. Remember what David wanted to do? David said, I want to build you a house. And what does God say to David? Oh, David, I'm going to make you a house. You're not building me a house. I'm going to make you a house. And there's this play on words that takes place. See, the word house can refer to a dwelling or it can refer to a dynasty. A dynasty that endures. In other words, what he is saying is, David, right now, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to make a promise with you. you haven't, John Piper, he described a covenant like this. He said, a covenant of grace in the scripture is when God comes and he reveals his job description to you and then signs it. And that's exactly what's happening here. David has done nothing to earn this. He's done nothing to deserve this. He's not, he's not uh, some holy guy set apart saying, hey, I, you know, I want you to make a covenant with him. No, God comes to him, why? By grace. He says, I'm gonna obligate and commit myself to you, not because you're awesome, but because I am great. And because I am kind and merciful and generous. And God makes a, pro, a, a covenant with him that, that his throne is not going to stop with him in fact his bloodline is going to be a dynasty that is going to preserve Israel for all generations going forward that by what God has done in David nobody will be able to stand against his throne and ultimately prevail now there's a dynasty that's about to take place Oh, brothers and sisters we come to God the same way that David tries to come to God we try to come to him the very same way We try to come to God and we try to say, God, I'm going to work really hard for you. And because I work really hard for you, I want you to work really hard for me. We come to God and we say, God, I'm going to pray by the right superstition and in the right order and say the right words. And somehow that's going to obligate you to respond to me the way that I expect you to respond to me. And then you're going to just do it because I'm going to do the right things and then you're going to respond in the right ways. But God comes and he flips the script. This was what Jesus was doing, is the Messiah is not who you expect him to be. You do not relate to God the way that you expect to relate to God. That God does not come to you because you first came to him. He comes to you because you can never get to him. Jesus comes so that you can know that all of the other gods that you're chasing, all the ambitions that you have, all the hobbies that you have, all the relationships that you have, what do they say to you? You work hard at these. You work hard at these and then they will bless you. You work hard enough at your job, then you will have plenty of money. You work hard enough at your hobbies, then your hobbies will bring you plenty of of satisfaction and plenty of pleasure. You work hard enough at your relationships and all those relationships are going to pour back into your life and you get to the end of your rope and you're overwhelmed because you aren't good at your hobbies and your job's not going the way that you thought it would do and your relationships all seem to be crumbling around you and you're like, what in the world? And Christ says, no, no. It's not you work hard for me and then I work hard for you is that I have come for you. There is nothing left for you to do. There is only for you to receive. To receive my grace by faith to come into my kingdom forever with me. That your only responsibility is to love God and to praise God for what he has done. That's, that's, that's your debt. That's your responsibility. And so I wonder how many of you this morning, you're overwhelmed. You're overwhelmed with things to do you're overwhelmed with people to satisfy. You're overwhelmed with a, with a boss that can't be pleased. You're overwhelmed with a marriage that isn't going the way you thought it ought to go. You're overwhelmed with responsibilities for your kids and responsibilities for your community and, and all these things and all these things that you have to do. And then you, you want to add into that these hobbies so that you can be a well-rounded person. doing all. This. And you're just sitting there saying, I don't need anything else to do. And Jesus is coming and saying, good, I have nothing for you to do, only for you to receive. Man, tell that. Tell that to your exhaustion. Tell that to your weary bones. Tell that to that threadbare tent that you're living in and languishing in. God is always to us. We're not to him. Finally, I want you to see that God is always for us. That God is always for us. And so so the setup is that all the descendants, so, so we kind of get in these final verses the how that God is going to establish and make a house for, my glasses are fogging up, that's pretty cool. Um, but, but the how of how God is going to establish David as a house that's going to endure and press on forever. And he says, look, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to allow your offspring to come after you. And they're going to come from your body. That is, they are direct descendants of you. And they're going to come. And I'm going to allow them to come and to build a house for my name. And I'm going to establish him forever. So, so we know immediately... the the thought of Solomon comes into our minds, right? Because Solomon does build a temple and and Solomon does come directly from the line of David. He is David's son. And so we we think of Solomon as being the fulfillment and seeing how it carried forward. But what happened? He says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a a son. But when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him, the rod of men. Do you know what happens? Over the course of time, even with Solomon himself, the, the sons of David begin to waver and they wane. So much so that throughout 1st and 2nd Kings, what you read over and over and over is they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so eventually, eventually, there is no, there is no king left on the throne of David. The, the kingdom of Israel is splintered. And they are occupied by the Babylonians and by the Assyrians and then by the Romans. And it looks as though the promise is in peril. that This promise that God has made to David is going to falter and is going to waver. But he said, he said that he was going to do it forever. And not only did he say it forever once in verse 13, he says it one more time in verse 16 and then one more time there at the very end. And so what do we have here? One, two. Do you remember what we said about Hebrew? We talk about this all the time, don't we? This is a final promise to the nth degree. That this promise that he is making to David, this covenant of grace is not one that can come and go. Not if God is who he says he is. Not if God is true. It is forever, forever, forever. It is 16 exclamation points, triple underline, all caps, bolded, forever, forever, forever. But you come into the time of Israel and there's nobody upon the throne of David. How can it be? How can it be? You see, when we think about the, the promises of God, we think about them in the immediate. All right? I want you to think, of you, 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 when I was growing up, you get these, like, lightsaber swords and they telescope. Do you remember those? Like, you look down and it looked like a little dagger, but you can go, Pff! you can sling it like that. And that thing would extend out like this, right? And so it went from a little bitty dagger to a long sword, and now you can do business. You know what I'm talking about? I wanted to find one of those, but you can't find those as regularly as you ought to be this is an awesome toy by the way all right when we think about the promises of God we need to think of them as telescoping promises that there is the fulfillment in the immediate and that's what we see taking place with Solomon Solomon is the immediate fulfillment of this promise but the promises of God go like this and they extend out And the immediate is a prefiguring and a foreshadowing of the greater fulfillment of the ultimate fulfillment that is to come. And so whenever we are studying, in the Old Testament especially, the promises of God, but in the New Testament too, we should ask, what is the immediate fulfillment and what is the ultimate fulfillment? You see, when Israel was being occupied in the first century... They had a governor by the name of Pontius Pilate who tried to put images of the Roman gods in the midst of their temple. And they could not have imagined something worse. And do you know where they found their hope? They found their hope in this promise, the same promise that had held up for years and years and years. Because there was something by another man, the prophet Isaiah, who said this, For to us a child is born to us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, all caps, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on what? The throne of of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice, with righteousness from the time, this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this they had this concept that the throne of, God, of David would be fulfilled yet again and so here they are occupied by all of these enemy forces and it, it appears as though they're going to live enslaved as servants to these, these pagan Romans all this time and so all they could sit there and walk around and think about is when is the son of David going to come? My hope is that David's throne will be filled again. My hope is that by God's grace to us, that one more time he will live with us and that there will be a son of David who is at the same time called everlasting God. And it's into the midst of this despair. It's in the midst of this hopelessness that the angel of the Lord comes to Mary and says this, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him what? The throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Do you see the hope that's found there? Go back and let's look at this now. We saw in the immediate how Solomon is going to be the fulfillment, how he's going to wane, he's going to to have iniquity, and he's going to be disciplined. But I want us to go back and think of it, how it's going to be fulfilled in the ultimate. He says, I will establish the throne of his king forever. Brothers and sisters, Solomon was never going to live forever. Forever. No son of David in the immediate was ever going to live forever. There had to be one that would live forever. And so he says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Does that sound like Jesus Does that sound like Jesus? And he did not commit iniquities, but in his body, he bore our iniquities and bearing our iniquities, he was disciplined with the rods of men so that by his stripes, we have been healed. We as the sons of men, that the steadfast, chesed love, if you remember that from Ruth, will not depart from us, but the loyalty of God will be enjoyed by us forever, everlasting from generation to generation. And How? How will God do this? How will God bring such a son to reclaim the throne of David and to establish it so that all of us have hope forever? He will raise him up. He will raise him up from the dead and he will overcome the grave and he will overcome sin and he will overcome David's faultiness and Solomon's promiscuity and all of the evil and wickedness of the sons of David himself he will raise him up so that now all of us who are in Christ all of us who put our confidence in his throne we too can be raised up with Christ and when we are raised up with Christ we are described by Peter as being living stones placed in the walls of God's kingdom that is we are the stones out of which God is building his house oh brothers and sisters brothers and sisters David could not build God a house but God built his own house by making David into a house you see brothers and sisters God is for us, God is for us, because Christ has come and proven it to every single one of us. And so there is an invitation that is given to us straight from the lips of Jesus, if you believe this, and I believe you do, if you love this and cherish this, and I believe you do, if this excites and rejuvenates your heart and your spirit, like I believe it does, listen to the invitation That's given to us from the king who sits upon the throne of David. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things. For whom? Not just for Israel. Oh, for the Gentiles too. For the churches. For Iron City Baptist Church. For me and for you. I am the root and the descendant of David. The bright morning star, the one long promised and awaited, the spirit and the bride, that is Jesus himself, say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take take the water of life without price. Oh, has this world left you thirsty? Have you tried to work hard so that God will work hard for you? Has it left you thirsty? Do you feel weary and thirsty? The son of David says, come, come. Drink from my fountain because it's grace. Come, because what I have, you have nothing to do, only to receive. Come, come, because I am with you and I am to you and I am for you. Come, this morning, come. We look forward to seeing you soon.